tonight, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 9. As we continue through the gospel of Matthew, last week we left off in chapter 8 where Jesus got in the boat and went to the other side where people are out of their minds and terrorizing people and naked and raising thousands of pigs and then want Jesus to leave when he brings good things to the community. And that's just the way it goes sometimes, right? And that was the other side where Jesus, the disciples got in the boat with him and went to the other side. So from the context of that happening, and by the way, there's no doubt in anyone's mind in that boat that that side of the sea of Galilee, they're all sinners. <laughs> and they, need, they, they definitely need, they need some mercy and grace. But the challenging ministry that Jesus had is convincing everyday good people that they need saving grace as well, which brings us to tonight's text. So we pick it up tonight. If you have a Bible, you can join us in chapter 9, and we'll pick it up, uh, verse 1, and we'll go through verse 13. So Jesus got into the boat from the other side, and he crossed over and came to his own city. That would have been uh, uh, Capernaum there on the Sea of Galilee. And then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic man, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin... Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So as you can see from the context, the stories connect because you have Jesus healing the man. And then it says as he passed on from there that he called Matthew. And then there he is at the dinner table with Matthew and all of his friends. So these stories all go together. And really, if we're going to connect the context of topic... It is Jesus and sinners. That's really what it is because he uses that phrase. They said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And since the first part of the book of the chapter, excuse me, the first part of the chapter is Jesus proclaiming forgiveness for the man and commending the faith of his friends. And then he calls Matthew, who's in the business of tax collecting, which would have been perceived as taking advantage of people because it was an opportunity to exploit the position to get taxes for Rome and extra fees and money for yourself. It was presumed that way. But he calls him unconditionally, of course. He doesn't say, hey, clean yourself up and then follow me. He just says, hey, you right now, follow me. And then we see 
where he, Matthew's like, hey guys, you got to come have dinner with Jesus, man. This is gonna, you got to come, you got to come. And so his friends are there and the scribes accuse Jesus of blasphemy in the first part of the text. And then the Pharisees, who are the religious sect, they're questioning why he's doing what he's doing. He answers the question, but then he challenges them in missing a, a huge component of God's heart that sometimes people with religion, particularly people religious, they want to do things that appear religious, but they miss the major things where they're doing this and maybe like in the Old Testament sense, offering animal sacrifices, but being cruel and unkind and callous toward people who God loves and has empathy toward. So he says, go and learn this. So the, the, the panoramic of this story has different moving parts and different things. I would point out to you that one thing that got my attention reading it the last week or so, he does call, when he heals the paralytic, he calls him son. I like that, and I just note this because later on, in, when we come back in a few weeks, the woman touching his garment, he calls her daughter. So here he called this guy son, who is helpless, and the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years, he calls daughter. And that just encourages me because we're told when we come to Christ, we're, we're sons and daughters of the king. Like I just, I just like how he unconditionally used a pronoun that describes intimacy on behalf of God toward this helpless person when he calls him son, and then the woman with the flow of blood where he calls her daughter. I just like that. Because God, God sent his son to bring us into his family. That, and so it, it makes sense. Like We're all invited to become be a part of God's family through faith in the son. But it really, the overall context is Jesus, sin, the issue of sin, calling a sinner, eating with sinners, and explaining what should happen with sinners. And so that's our context, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight with Jesus and sin. Now, we're going to get Jesus dealing with the topic of sin throughout the Gospel of Matthew, but it really sets up well tonight. I've mentioned in the last few months, it crossed my mind that I spend so much time thinking and meditating upon certain things that I memorize, like just different foreign languages and stuff like that, that I began to really focus in on memorizing scripture. And so just constantly once or twice a day, just clearing my mind and focusing on creation. Focusing on, as I did that, focusing on the covenants, the Adamic covenant, the Noah covenant. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Abrahamic covenant, get out of your country and your family and go to land I promised you. The Mosaic covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel. And it's been, it's been really beneficial but as I've expanded what I'm thinking about, of course, you know, the Ten Commandments, the law, and then the Beatitudes and fruit of the Spirit and all that stuff, just, just adding to it. I'm just adding to things that I'm thinking about when I'm clearing my mind a couple times a day, just going through the days of creation, the Ten Commandments, the covenants, and the Beatitudes. And over here, I'm going to add the, the return of the Lord in the next few weeks. I'm going to start adding scriptures there. And just getting the whole panoramic and filling my mind with the panoramic of the kingdom. By the way, it's a good idea for you, too. I did a memorial today. And once you're gone at 67, you're gone. So until you're gone, we should be filling our minds with the things to where we're going and be thinking about that. Making earth a better place and making heaven a bigger place, as Keith Randolph likes to say to me when we hang out. But in this meditating on the scriptures, I've been really thinking a lot about Genesis 3.15 and self-determination. Because back in chapter 1, when the Lord made everything, he's, it says that it is good, and then he made man in his image. And of course, we know woman came in the image of man, 
uh, and also which mean in God's image as well. And, and everything made was good. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, and everything was good. And chapter 2 is everything's good. And they had a stewardship in the garden, and he brought the man to the woman. They're naked and unashamed. It's beautiful. It's all good. But here comes that choice and self-determination where God says, you know, this is the tree of life. This is me. This is where you want to be. But this is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat from this, you'll die. That's bad. And thus, through Adam, sin entered the world and death to all people. And so there I am at a memorial today for someone at 67 who had a heart attack and passed away, a good friend of mine from the 70s. It's inevitable. We're all, we're all facing the grave. Like I mentioned with Esther on Tuesday night when she said, if I perish, I perish. I, I share that quote of my dad years ago when I asked him how he faced all the terror of the Vietnam War. And he said, Joey, once you accept your mortality, you can just get back to business of doing your job. And his job was a Marine in Vietnam. And there's a lot to be said for that once you realize this is the reality. But the death is the reality of sin. So that separation from God, we're born sinners separated from God. We're spiritually dead. And even though we're growing, we're moving under entropy. And so we're going to eventually start to show the decay of death. And by the way, when you go to those memorials and school reunions, right, you see people you haven't seen in 20 years. And we just, oh, wow, this is what we look like 20 years later. You haven't seen them. And I literally had that experience today and seeing that. So we see the effects of death physically, and then we know there's an eternal death to be physically, to be eternally separated from God. So there's a spiritual death we're born with, there's a physical death that we're all facing, and there's an eternal death of separation from God. Which brings us back to Genesis 3.15. Because there in the fall, when self-determination took place with Adam and Eve, and they rebelled against God, God made the first prophecy concerning Jesus, and he, he said that, he would send the, the seed, which is Jesus, the Redeemer, and that, that the serpent would bruise his heel, but the Redeemer would crush the serpent's head. And Christ on the cross really is a fulfillment of that, that it's not a death sentence, because death, Jesus conquered the grave, the grave could not hold him. But we're also told in Romans that Jesus crushed Satan, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It literally says in Romans 16, he fully defeated Satan. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he defeated the power of sin, the grip of death over our life, and the power of the devil over our life. Thus, Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The issue isn't just being a paralytic or being a corrupt tax collector or all the things that summarize life, good, bad, and everything under the sun and the human experience. The issue with the Lord is going to always be sin. And sin is rebellion against God it's within us, and sin is to miss the mark. God is perfect, and we are not. It's just that simple. We have rebellion in us, and I think most of us clearly understand that. And if you need extra proof, I'll just tell you, go talk to a two-year-old and ask them what the first word is they say. It's not yes, it's no. It's rebellion is in us, and that's just the way it is. We're like this, and we're going to be like that unless we come to faith in Jesus and we pass from death to life. And we are forgiven of our sins, and we can go live a fruitful, abounding life in the Lord with that ongoing forgiveness, that positional righteousness through faith, and the practical righteousness as we just figure it out and go from glory to glory with the Lord, hopefully learning from our mistakes and failures. But in, with that background and that introduction to that reality of sin and just how I've even been thinking about this, 
In the first story here, the first part of the text that we get, verses 1 through 8, Jesus declares his authority to forgive sinners. Jesus declares his authority to forgive sinners. Thus, he's accused of blasphemy. And remember, he was crucified because he was accused of blasphemy. He he said he was God, and he is. And he raised this man who had never walked or couldn't walk to walk as evidence of the supernatural. He has demonstrated supernatural authority over the physical realm to prove he has a supernatural authority over the spiritual realm. So when we think about Jesus having authority to forgive sins, we understand in the totality of the scriptures He said he had the authority to forgive sins. He spoke that he forgave sins. Then through his death on the cross, we're told the confirmation of that authority to forgive sins is confirmed through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's affirmed by the apostles and the New Testament writings that sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. So you have the testimony of Jesus speaking it. You have the testimony of the apostles and the scriptures confirming it. But there's another testimony that's very important, and it's a testimony of the Holy Spirit. Because we're told that his spirit bears witness with our spirit. And when you know you're forgiven, you just know you're forgiven. Like when you really, when you come to Christ, there's a, there's a confirmation, and everyone's different with their emotions and how we're wired. But you, you just, the spirit bears witness with your spirit when you're forgiven. And you just know you're forgiven. For me, it was in 1987 in my dad's house when I read John chapter 19, and I read where Jesus said, it is finished, and that it just happened so clear in my mind. That very moment, I'm like, I'm saved by grace. I've been trying to earn forgiveness, but it's already provided. It is finished, and I receive it. And and it was like, wow. If you had to say, like, Joey, we got to pin you down to one day that you for sure know that you, you were born again, I'd say it was at that moment in my my dad's house in that room when I read that text. It is finished. Two words, and I knew it. Jennifer, who just celebrated her spiritual birthday, December 7th, my wife, 36 years of walking with Jesus. She went to that outreach. Brian Broderson, I shared my testimony. Broderson preached. She responded. 1987. But what I always remember about that is a few days later, I was talking to her, And she said, I'm forgiven. She said, I'm saved and I'm forgiven. And I said, of course you are. She goes, no. She was really serious. She goes, no. I know I'm saved and forgiven. I'm like, how do you know? And she goes, because I've forgiven my father. I've had all this bitterness against my dad, and that's been taken away, and I'm just free. Like, God took it from her. God had a spiritual confirmation by the Spirit for my wife before she was my wife that that happened. That's important. And, and this, is, this will give you well, how it's really helped me as I've matured in my faith. It helps me in being tolerant and gracious with people of other faiths. So stay with me for a minute. Because I used to feel like threatened or opposed to other faiths. Once in the 80s, staying at a hotel in Tokyo, I threw the book of Buddha out the hotel window. Buddha never claimed to be the Savior. And Buddha never claimed to die for your sins. Buddha never said he was the resurrection and the life. So don't feel threatened by Buddha. <laughs> I've got a calendar I bought at 
Staples last year, and it's kind of like the motivational calendar. It's cool. It's got like good sayings, but it's got Confucius for December. Oh, okay, I can, I can hang with Confucius for a month, you know. But it's basically, it's like, it's not how many times a man falls that counts, but how many times he gets back up. It's, it's a true statement that, you know, you keep getting up. Well, it's, Proverbs says that. Solomon said that too. But like, I just bring that up because, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh man, I cannot have, look at this little quote from Confucius for 30 days. And it's not like I'm going to sign up to do it again in January. But like, it doesn't throw me off because Confucius didn't claim to die for my sins. Confucius didn't claim to be the resurrection and the life. Confucius' blood didn't save anybody. So I don't feel threatened or, uh, uh, you know, it's like, it's just, it, it, if someone wants to follow Buddha and Confucius, that's their business. But those people, those leaders, religious leaders, they can't save people from their sins. They don't have the authority to forgive sins and to confirm it by the Spirit from the throne room of God this day when you repent. And that's why we should feel very secure in who Jesus is because he alone is the Savior. Jesus means Savior because he'll save his people from their sins. And from the dawn of creation, from Genesis 3.15 and that first prophecy concerning him, crushing the head of the serpent, it's to die for sins, to save people from their sins, and to restore humanity back to God, the Father. So Christ has the authority to forgive sins. And he died on the cross so he could forgive you and I of our sins. And he guides us daily in our walk to cleanse us, as it says in 1 John, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. He alone's the Savior. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. His blood alone, there in Ephesians 1, the redemption through his blood, he has forgiven us of our sins. Christ died, Hebrews tells us, Christ died once for all for our sins. He's the perfect sinless human being, son of God, son of man, who spoke authority to forgive sin, like in this text, died on the cross to confirm that, rose from the grave to establish it, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and sends the Spirit to affirm it to anyone and everyone who will open their hearts to faith in him. For as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And he affirms it, and he affirms that we're forgiven. So I just want to remind us tonight in this text, don't let the devil beat you up for failures of yesterday or terrorize you for failures potentially tomorrow. Stay in the moment. Stay in this day. And as we go forward with victory, great. When we stumble and make mistakes, recognize it, grow and learn from it. There were a couple millennial girls in their 20s that were there with their dad for this memorial. And anytime I see anyone young, I just immediately start pouring into them. I just want to tell them right away, know this, God's always got a future and a hope, not thoughts of evil, future and a hope. And I was just, I'm just that way with young people. I just want them to know the sky is not falling. And if you choose to see good, you're going to get good. And if you believe for good, God's going to, he's going to show himself strong on your behalf. But I said something to him, I go, you know, I just like, hey, when you say you're sorry, don't say but. I go, no excuses, girls. Like, when you, let me tell you something. Ten years ago when my wife said, I like it when you say you're sorry, but I like it when that's the end of the sentence. And I just like, because that's, 
We, we have today, and I'm pouring into these girls today, I'm pouring into their dad, I'm pouring into these friends, but the thought that when I parked the Oceanside Harbor and I was walking down to the memorial and the paddle out, it was such a beautiful day, and I thought, you know, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this day. Just thank you for this day, because we're honoring my friend who's not here for this day. And just help me to redeem this day, Lord. This, help me to read the situation when I come to this memorial. Help me to read the situation and have your heart in mind. Help me to be like Jesus showing up at Matthew's house. That's how we're to live. So I just want to remind us, it's Jesus alone who has the authority to forgive the sins of yesterday, the sins of today, the sins of this moment, and to restore and go forward. But it requires having humility. It requires being sensitive to receive it and really saying it, you're sorry, and that's the end of the sentence. You just, I'm sorry, and I want to grow and learn from this. Jennifer loves out this new category in my phone and my notes. It's the self-evaluation category. And whenever I do a bonehead thing, I write down what I did and what I can learn from it. And I review it once a week. It's like game film. Hey, remember you've seen this play before when they when you know when they're lining up this way, don't don't go that way. It's just just trying to grow and learn from our mistakes, right? That's what we want to do. Jesus has the authority. Jesus is the one that's going to forgive us. And that's why when we look to the day of the Lord, it's Jesus coming for us. And we know that we have redemption because of who he is and that he's the one that paid the price for our sins. And I'm so grateful that it is finished. And he proved it here. Jesus and sinners, he's got the authority to forgive our sins. Then we also see the second thing is he's the friend of sinners. When he calls Matthew, he's basically saying, hey, come on. Come with me. Follow me. And who knows what it's like when Jesus made eye contact with you like that in that situation. And it was so impactful. Matthew has to gather, and they all gather together there. And the accusation is fascinating to me where it says that, that why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we know that breaking bread is a huge sign of fellowship and relationship in the human experience. It's, it's there in America, in our culture, but it's huge in many other cultures, like the Middle East. I remember when we go to Chile, they, they you know, sitting down, and you just didn't, it wasn't a 20-minute meal in Chile. It, it, it went on for hours. Like, really, if we knew if we were invited to a dinner, this, this, is, this goes on, this is like a social hour, this is like three, four hours, like the French, you know, going out at nine at night to stay up till three in the morning. Like, this is, this is a, a major thing. And breaking bread is, is, an, is identifying of a oneness in most of these cultures, particularly the ancient cultures. So when Jesus was breaking bread with these, these people, these known sinners, you know, prostitutes, harlots, whatever, and tax collectors and shady people, it really upset the religious leaders because they had ostracized those people and they saw those people as the, as the enemy of things that were wrong and everything what's wrong in the world is those people. Those people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, like those kind of people. And it was stunning to them that Jesus would cross that line and go into their world and be their friend. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Which makes sense, because Jesus is the friend of humanity, and all of humanity 
is sinners. And Jesus meets every one of us right where we're at to be able to call us son or daughter. In other words, as it says in Proverbs, to have friends, one must be friendly. And there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And Jesus is the friend. He actually called the disciples friends. And like in that, that sense, like the intimacy. Jesus, Jesus, you know, we all know this, or we should, that Jesus is the best friend we'll ever have because he's God. He's the son of God. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We're, once we come to him, we're now functioning in that calling he has on our life. And by the spirit of God, he's going to lead and guide us in it. He's for us. He's always for us. Always for us. On our best day and on our worst day, Jesus is for us. We know repentance is required, but we know that God loves humanity unconditionally. God so loved the world, he gave his son. And we're told that while we're yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ came and died for us. He is one that initiates it and engages it. He's the one that engages it. He's, 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 he's looking for us. So this brings us to a key thought. Now, most of us know this in our own life, that Jesus is for us and he came after us. But I was really, I've been thinking a lot about this. And today at the memorial, for sure, with the paddle out in the water like surfers do. And I was really thinking about this. Jesus was friendly in the, in the situations he's invited to. I picture him at the wedding in Cana. He's like, hey, you know, like, like he, he wasn't uptight. He wasn't weird. He wasn't religious. Jesus wasn't weird or, or uptight, or grumpy, or irritable. He, you know, the, the woman caught in adultery, nor, nor do I condemn you. you know, like, every situation that you see with Jesus, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to eat at your house today. I thought, I'm going to your house, Zacchaeus. Really? Well, you know, I'll give it everything back plus fourfold. He knew the law. He was so touched by Jesus coming to his house, Zacchaeus there in the gospel of Luke, that he's, he's like, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to restore everything I stole, and I'm going to do it. You see what happens with unconditional love and grace? It works that way. When we just meet people where they're at and just accept them where they're at, then we can bring Jesus in that equation. And again, we showing people Jesus, telling people about Jesus, absolutely, it's necessary. Because how can they hear if the gospel's not preached? But I think it was Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said best, preach Christ at all times and if necessary, use words. Our lives, our lives are a testimony. How we treat people is a testimony. And, and, it, and it all adds up. It's a compound effect. Jesus said that wisdom is justified by her children. So when we have made good decisions to receive Christ, to grow in Christ, and walk in the spirit and live the life of Christ, and you get the compound effects of Three months, six months, a year, you start building credibility. You get three years, five years, ten years. The credibility builds until suddenly you have all this equity and credibility of 30, 40 years of walking with Jesus, and you should have the fruit of being transformed every year more and more from glory to glory, and you just, you tilt the room. You tilt the room spiritually. You have that equity, that credibility, and you have a, a power, and you don't need to be weird or quirky or anything with Jesus. You, just, you love people because Jesus loves people. You serve people because Jesus serves people. And you realize he met everyone where they're at. Can you imagine the type of conversations at this table? 
You know, like when you're with, like if you're with old friends or coworkers and it's a Christmas party and they all start drinking and they start getting vulgar, start using potty language, stuff like that, getting crude. And you're just like, oh, but you're like, I'm sure it happened to Jesus. And you just, remember when Jesus was with the leper, the leper didn't defile Jesus. Jesus cleansed the leper. And so like in those situations, it's like, oh, you guys are, you, you vote the wrong way. You live the wrong way. You just go away. Like it's you people that are wrecking the future for all the generations. No, it's like, hey, Jesus came and died for these people. And in most cases, there'll be some extreme cases where maybe you have to call something out or someone's a dangerous criminal. Obviously, we realize that. But let's just put that aside. In most cases, it's just people that are unsaved acting like unsaved people. And if you give them 20 years, they'll act like this. If you give them 40 years, they'll act like that. And in my case today, seeing some friends in their 60s, this is what they'll act like in their 60s. And, if it, you know, and God forbid you see what they act like when they're 85 and they're in assisted living. It just keeps compounding. So you bring in Jesus, you being friendly and gracious and bringing Jesus in those equations with those people, man, you're, you're, you're preaching the gospel. You really are. Especially if people expect you to be all preachy and, well, I'll say it. Today at the beach, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses had their spots like they always do. And, you know, they're just like, you know how they are at the pier and all this stuff. And there's nothing about them that's friendly or inviting. I'm just, at least from my observation, this is my perspective. The point being is like, there's nothing that would say like, oh, I really want to be with these people. I really want to walk over and get this magazine so I can act like this too. It, it, it's, it's like a, and if you ever engage in conversation, I'm not saying all of them, but I have at times, it's aloof, it's condescending, and there's nothing inviting about it. But going down to this memorial today, I had to walk by two sets, the, the Spanish-speaking ones and the English-speaking ones. I was like, there's, there's nothing there that's endearing. I'm sure they might be friendly if you ask them questions, but they're not. And I just thought, the people at this memorial who were unsaved and spoke at this memorial with an open mic, if you will, and said things that unsaved people say, like, I'm just glad it was me bringing Jesus to that equation and not some of the false gospel or people being weird. Now, I'm not saying I can't be weird. Obviously, you've been around me for a long time. Right? I, I try not, you know, weird's bad. So let's just say quirky, you know, or odd or whatever. But like, I just listen to these people sharing at this tes- these testimonies at this memorial and just them looking to me as a minister to bring direction and all this, even in the paddle out. It, it's just bringing Jesus to the equation. Jesus is a friend of sinners, And I was with a lot of sinners, if you will, today. People in my generation who are not born again. They don't confess Christ. They don't live a life for Christ. And they were there honoring a mutual friend. And I'm just so grateful that I got to bring Jesus in that equation. How I carried myself. How I reached out to people. How I asked them things about their life. How they're doing. Like, that's that's what we're called to do. That's what you do. That's what you do. You do and you do. This is what we're called to do. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Be engaging. Like, think of, see the opportunities, not the inconveniences of what's going on. Initiate. Recognize, like, well, here we are. We're at the table with Matthew and his friends, and this is where it's going. And it's, you know, the alcohol is flowing right now, and I'm kind of stuck here for at least 45 minutes. 
Well, ask for wisdom and just love on people. We weren't saved because we were desirable. We were saved because we were sinners. We can never forget that. And some people might seem like they're more tolerable, unsaved than other people. But to be guilty of one part of God's law is guilty of all the law. And we all need to be saved through faith and grace in Jesus Christ. And when you think about the great commission of the church and who we are and letting our light shine, just picture Jesus at the table with all these people. It would just, the grace, the mercy, the compassion, the love, he was drawing people by how he interacted with people. He wasn't condescending upon them. I mean, the night he was betrayed, he got on his knees and washed people's feet. And that's good to think about, especially with the holiday season, to, 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 to be friendly, to make friends with sinners. What is ministry? It's making friends with sinners. It's meeting people where they're at. It's meeting people where they're at. And as we say, you can tell me what to do, but I'd rather you show me what to do. And when you study great missionaries in church history, you study some of these great missionaries from two, 300 years ago, in some cases, they went to foreign countries for years before anyone would choose to identify with faith in Jesus. And then if they were baptized, that was huge. I just know when going to Virginia in the 90s, being a Calvary Chapel, everyone was a Baptist, a Methodist, a Presbyterian or something, even if they didn't practice their faith. And no one cared if they didn't practice their faith, but the moment they went to Calvary Chapel in a strip mall, they're like, hey, the family was offended. And they felt like they were betraying the family or the family spiritual genealogy by going to a Calvary chapel. We were constantly called a cult and all these things, and it was tough. But I realized how hard it is for people to step out of an identity that they have to step into identity that they're going to have in Jesus' name and in the body of Christ. So we want to meet people where they're at, and we want to show them Jesus the way he is, like a city on a hill, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. The final thing we see that was verses 9 through 11, is Jesus is calling uh, uh, repentance for sinners. So we have the authority to forgive sinners, the friend of sinners, and calling for repentance uh, from sinners. And, and that is a key, of course. Grace is not cheap. To say we confess that Jesus is Lord and he died on the cross for our sins and be the same person the next day, it makes his death on the cross vain. We need the power of the risen Savior to empower us to the victorious life of, sanct of a sanctified life where we're moving from what was to what is, from, from glory to glory. Repentance, it implies a 180-degree turn. So if we're like acting like this and we come to Christ, it's going to move and turn this way. We're going to, instead of being back to the Lord, we now face the Lord. Repentance is the idea of making things that were wrong right. Remember when John the Baptist had his ministry of repentance and he said, hey, you who do this, don't do that anymore. You who did that, don't do that anymore. So he gave him actual little examples of what to do that would show repentance. And the thing about repentance, if, if you could summarize it in simplicity, which we should and most of us can, but we should, it really is a change of heart about sin. It's a change of attitude about sin, and it's a change of direction about sin. It's a change of heart, it's a change of attitude, and it's a change of direction. When someone's been under the conviction 
for sin. The Holy Spirit will help us to see it for what it really is. I'll use alcohol, for example. You know, maybe drinking and getting drunk was fun for a while, but, you know, but then when you're married and it's destroying your marriage, it's not fun anymore. And it's destructive. And it creates dysfunction. And it wrecks marriages. And it wrecks relationships with children as well. Well, if you think it's fun to drink and it's okay to drink when you've just already destroyed this thing and you're destroying that, and you say you know Jesus but you keep doing it, you see, there's, there's not a change of heart. You're not seeing and agreeing with just how destructive this is and what needs to happen to have a change of heart. To, it, there, you have to agree with the Lord, like, this is really bad for my marriage. This is really bad for my status as an employee. I don't have control. This just has control of me. And it's destroying this, it's destroying that, and it's got to go. It's, you don't think like, oh, man, it's just so much fun drinking Coronas with my high school friends and making a fool of myself. Well, yeah, it's not, that's not funny. That's destructive. You get away with it when you're a senior in high school, but when you're a member of society, unless, yeah, we won't go there. You just, you need it. You, like, you need to agree. It's sexual morality, stealing, these types of things. It's like when, when the Holy Spirit says, like, hey, is that really the truth? Just right there. Yeah, like, because, see, it's a compound effect. Every little, all the little effects of lies and cheating and stealing and, and conniving and, and all these things, they compound effect and they affect your culture or your character. They have a compound effect on your character. So to, to be under the conviction, to agree with the Lord, to have a change of heart, to have a change of attitude, and to have a change of direction, is that's repentance. And it's her own benefit. There is never anything the Lord calls us to have repentance toward that is not going to benefit us with repentance. We only gain through repentance. We let go of that which is destroying us, sin, and we gain that which is transforming us, mercy and grace and holiness. The kingdom of God is holiness, light and life. Outside of the cowards. <laughs> Outside is anything that defiles. I remind myself of that in my fleshly body. Hey, that's not going to be there. This is what's going to be there. And you should do the same thing too. This, the, the things that offend, and that's not going to be there. I just, <laughs> I just reread Exodus, and I'm rereading Leviticus right now. And let me tell you, on behalf of the book of Leviticus, nothing that defiles is going to be there. So all that the Lord wants to get rid of here is to lighten our load, that sin that so weighs us down and easily ensnares us, to repent of that and move from grace to grace and glory to glory toward what we're moving toward. That's what we want to do. We're taking on the character of where we're going. We're, we're, it's like if you're going to be a, a, become a citizen, you have to study the nation and learn the history of the nation, and you get sworn in and you become a citizen. You're, you're becoming that citizen, well, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life to forgive us as sinners, to transform us as sinners, and to bring us to repentance and faith and going forward, it's like becoming that type of citizen. We're citizens of heaven, and we're ambassadors of Christ, and as we repent from our mistakes and go forward, we're becoming more the person of that citizenship. We're becoming more heavenly-minded. That's why Jesus said to store up our treasures in heaven, and Paul said, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. This is all going to fade away. 
all that offends is vile, vulgar, and corrupt. All that is true, just, noble, praiseworthy, and honorable, that's where we're going. That's the culture of where we're going, and that's the character we want to take on as sinners being transformed from glory to glory on a daily basis, and it's for our own good. Every sin stronghold in my life that the, I've really let the Lord go after, it's been to my own benefit. Particularly, I watched alcohol destroy my parents' marriage and profoundly affect and huge negative impact on my older brother and younger sister. And it didn't do me any good when I was drinking alcohol in my teen years and early 20s. I'm just so grateful that alcohol's never had a part of my marriage in 35 years. I'm just very grateful. When I'm at Trader Joe's and you see people buying all their wine bottles and all that stuff on a Friday, I'm just so grateful. Like, wow, that costs a lot too. See, that repentance where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, verse 13. This is the bottom line on repentance. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to take us from dysfunction as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, born with a sinful nature. It's to take us from dysfunction to function. It's to take us from being dysfunctional to functional. Like when my sister was homeless and out of control and screaming at streetlights out of her mind, and to see her in her right mind, thriving with the Lord, that's going from dysfunction to function. And she had to repent of this, repent of that, and repent of this. And, and that's what happens. We go from dysfunctional things with the sinful nature and all the consequences of sin, because sin is always death, to a healthier life with the power of the Spirit that's functional and fruitful. And that's, that's a good life. That's, that's the life where mercy's working in our lives. And it's not about religion and all these outward sacrifices of show to impress people. It's just mercy working, transforming us from glory to glory. As I was leaving today, the memorial, I just thought, you know, it, the, serving Jesus is so simple. It really is. Love God, love people. Let God work in our life, and then let God work through our life to bless other people's lives. It's, it really is that simple. So tonight, this holiday season, what remains of it, I just remind us all that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. He's the friend of sinners, and he wants to deliver us from sin to our own benefit. He's the Savior of the world. His name is Jesus.